One of my most beloved memories from childhood was seeing one of my favorite baseball players accomplish a fantastic feat. One of the most that most baseball players will never actually accomplish. I was 12, and I was down in Tampa Bay, Florida, visiting my grandparents. My grandmother was an avid Tampa Bay Rays fan, and she went to a lot of their games. So she decided to take me, her grandson, to one of them. Now, this was not just any game, though. This is the day that future Hall of Famer Wade Boggs was sitting at 2,999 hits. The crowd was electric. They were screaming. You could feel it. You could feel the energy. It was something I had never seen before. They were all hoping that they would witness a once-in-a-generation feat. Now, this was the 3,000th hit. No, now, we didn't have to wait for very long, thankfully. Early on in the game, Wade Boggs stood up to the plate and hits a fly ball out into the air, high and far and fast, and it sails over the wall for a home run. A 3,000th hit. The crowd went wild, and the announcer stoically says, this is the hit that made history. A two-run home run. This is a moment you will never forget, folks. Tonight, Boggs joins the 3,000 hit club. You will never forget this. I was a witness to this event. I personally experienced it. This event changed me. My love for baseball, it grew exponentially. And I currently am a still an avid fan of the sport. I am one of the few thousands who were sitting in the stands that night to see this happen. And as such, I was able to bear witness to the events. Would anyone ever ask me what happened? And then they can hear, just as you did today, what happened. And they can hear how this event had a profound change in my life. This morning, we are looking at the concept of being a witness. Not of a sporting event, but a witness of the gospel. We see this morning how not only must we bear witness to the love, the mercy, and grace of God, but what we also must do is share what we have witnessed with those who we come in contact with, our families, our co-workers, our schoolmates, and our supervisors. This concept of being a witness is something that we as a church, made up as individuals, must be witnesses of the gospel to the culture. For as the people of God, the church are witnesses. But what must Christians be witnesses of? Our first passage in Ephesians from chapter 2 shows us three concepts that Christians must be witnesses of. Witnesses of our sin, witnesses of God's love and mercy, and witnesses of God's grace and salvation. This section of Ephesians is perhaps one of the most wonderful and shocking sections of Scripture ever written. Here in these verses, we see the true colors of humanity. And it is far worse than many of us would like to admit. Yet we also discover here the amazing grace and goodness of God. And it is far greater than we could possibly imagine. Let's first look at what it means to be a witness of our sin. Ephesians 2, verses 1 to 3, they show us that we sin against God. Now this word sin, it's thrown around a lot in churches, but it really never gets defined. Sin is disobeying and ignoring God's law, as well as failing to do what is right. If we fail to understand the depths of our sin, the depravity of our sin, how could we hope to understand the greatness and the goodness 
of God's love. Ephesians 2.1 goes on to say this, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins. This verse shows us that we are sinful, and because of our sin, we are all dead. Now this is a strong statement, being dead, no longer living in any capacity. Now, Paul the Apostle, he didn't mean that we are all physically dead. We're not all walking around like zombies. But rather, we are all spiritually dead, completely unable to make ourselves alive again, utterly unable to do anything, unable to save ourselves. We're like a player on a sports team who is mathematically eliminated from the playoffs at the beginning of the season. Yet with still a whole season left to play, they're unable to do anything to win that championship except hope that a merciful team will trade for them to bail them out of the situation that they are in. They can do nothing themselves. This dead metaphor that Paul is saying, we are dead to the goodness that God made us for. Our sin has made us totally and radically depraved. This is the first part of the punishment for our sin. While we see this in Scripture, this is the opposite of what our culture sees about mankind. Our culture sees that everyone is naturally inclined to be good. When children are spoken of, it is talked about their innocence and how their good, uncorruptible nature of their being. Yet as a father of three children, all of which are under four, I can guarantee to you that you don't have to show a child how to sin. It's something that they're naturally inclined to do. Because they are spiritually dead and radically depraved, this is all how we were born, all sinful. It's a condition of humanity, a condition humanity has had since the original sin of Adam. We see this in Genesis 3. God created the earth and everything in it, and it was good. Yet Adam and Eve broke the one rule God had given to them. And from now on, we're under the punishment of sin. And this was passed down to us. This, this punishment is spiritual deadness. It makes us unable to fix our problem of sin. Completely unable to make our relationship with God whole again. Like it was with Adam and Eve when they walked with God in the garden in the cool of the day. Yet sadly, this is only verse 1, the first part of our spiritual condition. Not only are we spiritually dead, we are radically depraved. Chapter 2, verse 2 and 3 of this passage, it shows us this, that the second part of our punishment is our slavery to sin. It says this, "...in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air." the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and mind. This verse and a half, it shows us that each and every one of us is a witness of our slavery to sin. No one has been missed. This is what has mutilated our relationship with God. Our sin cannot be in the presence of God's perfection. Now due to this slavery, due to us having no control, completely unable to do good, to do what is godly, instead we only do what Satan desires for us to do. Our slavery to sin is something that we, we can't get out of. We can't go on our own. We can't save ourselves. We're like a bear trapped in a contraption into a trap 
completely unable to free ourselves. Yet, even worse than that, we have been tricked into thinking that we desire to be trapped there. We desire to be trapped in this lifestyle of sin. For slavery to sin is more than just for our bodies. It also enslaves our minds. This slavery and deadness to sin leads to one inevitable conclusion. Our utter deserving of God's wrath. In the second half of this verse, um, verse 3, we see that Paul says the same thing he says in Romans 1, 18-32, that we are children of wrath. Meaning that as sons and daughters of Adam, we are deserving of the full wrath of God. For all have sinned, and we have no hope outside of Christ. Outside of Christ we have no hope. Now this doctrine of God's wrath is not a popular one in our culture today. We want a loving and forgiving God. One who will deal with us in a manner which gives us assurance. All is well and makes us feel better. This mindset of our culture finds it difficult to think, why would God even be mad at me? Why? I only do a few bad things. I'm no murderer. I'm no thief. But if we truly take a moment to think about our condition, to think about what actually happens, none of us, not one, has always lived in a manner which God commands for every single second of every single day of our lives. Yet this is the standard God has given for us. At, at this time, all the time actually, we see sin and we don't call it out. We see something we desire something God forbids, yet we run towards it instead of running away from it. We are consumers of sin and deserving of God's wrath and condemnation. We deserve punishment for our sin. We deserve eternal separation from God. We deserve eternity in hell. We deserve the pain and miseries of this life and in the life to come. This is what would be just. This is what we deserve. Yet, out of God's character, because of who He is, He has not left us to live forever in our deadness, forever in our slavery, forever in our deservingness of wrath. These last few verses of our passage, verses 4-10, to 10, deal with what God has done out of love, out of mercy, and out of grace. All of us in creation are witnesses of sin. For we all share the common ancestry of Adam, having it passed down as an inheritance. And we commit sin daily. Yet God, out of His mercy, chose to show grace. And all who have accepted this gift of grace bear witness to this. To more than just slavery to sin, but to salvation. All who have Jesus as their Savior can stand as witnesses to God's grace, which we see in verses 4 to 7. But actually, we can also even just see it in the first two words of verse 4. The first two words of 4 just say, But God. Out of God's love, He decided to show mercy. Mercy that we do not deserve, yet we desperately desire. Like the nation of Israel did, crying out in Egypt, crying out in their slavery in the book of Exodus, desperately crying out for God to save them. God did this for His people again. And He has done so in sending Jesus to be the Savior of sinners. 
Verse 7 shows us that the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. That He is rich in mercy. That He gives His people, while they are still in sin, grace. He, gives, he sent Jesus as that. As we sang just a few minutes ago, as in verse 5, it shows us that He loved us while we were still dead. Yet out of His mercy and His love, He makes us alive. Something we could not do on our own. Just like the Father raised Jesus from the grave, bringing Him from death to life, so He also does for us. God has spiritually brought His people back to life. So that your relationship with God has been restored. Furthermore, God has also freed you from slavery. Not only um, are, you, are you no longer a slave to sin, but you are also able to do good works for God. Freedom from slavery, from slavery to sin and Satan now belonging to God. This is not only life-changing, it is lifestyle-altering. You, now by the power of the Holy Spirit who has come upon you, continues to work in you to change your life from the inside out. Additionally, God has not only turned His wrath upon you, He's turned it away onto Christ. For as I said before, everyone who has sinned is deserving of the wrath of God. Yet God, out of His great mercy, turned His wrath away from you and onto His Son Jesus at the cross, pouring out the wrath that you deserve upon Him so that not only are you forgiven, but Jesus' righteousness is credited to you. He took the punishment, yet gave you the benefit of His sacrifice. That is love. That is grace. God has given you grace for salvation. And it's not something that you could have earned. It was a gift that God sent Jesus to die for. And He offers it freely to all who will call upon His name. So what must we do with this knowledge of God's love, our sin, God's mercy and grace that He sent Jesus as the salvation for our sin? Well, the options are twofold. And both of them involve witnessing. If you don't know Jesus as your Savior, you just heard the witness of God's love. If you desire to have Jesus as your Savior, you no longer want to be dead, enslaved to sin, deserving of wrath. All you must do is accept God's loving and free gift of grace by which He sent Jesus to be the Savior of sin. Accept this gift by confessing your sin to God, asking Him to forgive you, give you the forgiveness bought by Jesus on the cross. Then you will stop being a second-hand witness of God's grace, but rather experiencing these events firsthand. And now becoming a witness of God, you now have the benefit of living with God forever in heaven. Now if you do know Jesus as your Savior, if you already have a first-hand witnesses of God's actions, and being a witness, you must do something else. You must not keep quiet. Instead, you must be bold. You must be courageous in sharing the love of God with all whom you're connected to. You must be like that person in your life. You all know the one. The one who, if you want information to get out, you just talk to them and it will spread. 
You need to be like them in this instance, being willing to share the gospel whoever will come in contact with because it's that great of news. And it needs to be shared. You can't keep it to yourself. Our second passage this morning from Ephesians 6, it showed us who we must be witnesses to. Now each of us, we have various spheres of influence. Some larger than others, some more specific than others. But all of us have at least one of these three major spheres. Our families, our workplaces, and our schools. The first four verses of of, uh, Ephesians 6 are directed at being witnesses to our families. The first three verses say this, specifically aimed at children. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. These verses are telling children to be witnesses of God's mighty acts of power to their parents. Now, in many ways, this is backwards thinking. How could a child be a witness to their parents? Because for all you children out there, this is the truth. You can be witnesses to your parents. At least weekly, I can have an example from my life. My oldest daughter, Deborah, she shows me an aspect of God's grace and His gospel in her actions. For one of the things she says to me almost weekly is, Daddy, is something wrong? Are you mad? Is, are you sad? Let's stop right here, right now. Let's pray about it. Praying always helps. Let's just go do that now. Or sometimes she just starts singing one of her favorite hymns at the most needed time that I need to hear about it. Something's going on in my life and God's speaking through her, through her singing. At four years old, she is witnessing to me and my wife Leslie in ways that impact our daily lives. Now this is for all the children out there. It's not only by praying and singing can you witness to to your parents by showing them God's love. You can also witness to them by obeying and honoring them as we see in verses uh, 1 to 3 of chapter 6. Now why honor? Why obeying? Isn't that very hard? Isn't it difficult? Yet, yes, it is, but it's something we must do because God has commanded it. For not only here in this passage in Ephesians, it's also found in the Ten Commandments as well as other places. As I said before, obedience is hard. It's even hard for adults. Yet this is what the Bible expects of you children, to obey your parents even when it's hard. Even when you don't want to. For they have been placed in authority over you. Verse 1 of this passage, it even says that children... Um, or it says why children should obey their parents. Because it is right. Because it is correct. God-honoring behavior. Your obedience to them shows your parents that you are living the gospel. Not out of a way to make yourself look better, but rather because of the Holy Spirit's power within you, His changing you, and you desire to follow His Word. And in doing so, you are willing to live the gospel. Not only by sharing it in words, but in doing so, your daily actions, like obeying them. This also shows that you're willing to submit to the authority of your parents, even when you disagree with them. And in doing so, you're obeying because of your love for them and for Christ. 
By obeying and honoring them, you have a platform to share the words of the gospel with them, either as encouragement or in evangelism. Children, how are you witnessing to your parents in your actions as well as your words? Now in Ephesians 6, it continues in verse 4, addressing parents as well. Paul says, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Now, while this is specifically addressing fathers as the head of the household and as the leader of the spiritual development in your family, this command is also applicable to mothers as well. Parents are not to provoke their children to anger, or in other words, to not antagonize them. Parents, we have a hard enough job as it is constantly um, to live in a... live correctly and raising our children in a godly manner as Deuteronomy 6, 4-9 commands. Yet this passage is a reminder of how easily we can misuse our authority. The late John Stott wrote this, Parents can easily misuse their authority either by making irritating or unreasonable demands which make no allowances for inexperience or immaturity of, of children and can even be harsh and cruel. As parents, this command found in verse 4 should be taken as an encouragement to live the gospel by loving your children, by caring for them, loving them in obvious ways as well as behind the scenes. So that when you are able to have teachable moments to share the gospel with them in words and not just deeds. Also that you can say like the Apostle Paul, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Parents, this section is so important, for it is not an optional command. The second part of verse 4 makes this plain as day, that we must bring our children up in the ways of the Lord, meaning instruction, meaning discipline. This concept is so important that we even include it in our vows of baptism. The last question given to parents as they have their child baptized is this, and you'll see it on the screen. Do you now unreservedly dedicate your child to God and promise in humble reliance upon divine grace that you will endeavor to set before Him a godly example, that you will pray with and for Him, that you will teach Him the doctrines of our holy religion, and that you will strive by all the means of God's appointment to bring Him up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. This is a reminder and a challenge to all parents to live in such a way that you are witnessing to your children in daily, obvious um, circumstances, but also in subtle ways. This is your duty. As parents, we must live as witnesses of God and His actions and change our daily lives, daily sacrificing for our children, sharing the gospel with them in word and deed. So I challenge you parents, as I challenge the children, how are you witnessing to your children on a daily basis? Now, not all of us are parents. Not all of us are children. But most of us have a job or attend school. Verses 5 to 8 in chapter 6 addresses how we can be witnesses in the workplace and are in our educational environment. Paul says in verses 5 to 8 this, Bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not only by way of eye service, 
as people pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, that he will receive back from the Lord, whether as he is a bondservant or free. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both master and yours in heaven that there is no partiality with him. Now, while these, these verses, they specifically address um, servants and masters, Paul is in general speaking to all who work under an employer, as well as the employer themselves. He stipulates that we are to be witnesses of the gospel to our supervisors, our managers, co-workers, and teachers. And you should do, do this by treating them with deep respect. Now, because of their position and responsibility over you, these men and women should be treated with respect even if they don't deserve it. As a soldier might have to respect their commanding officer even if they don't like the person. By giving them respect you think they may not deserve, this creates opportunities in which you are able to share the gospel and having conversations about gospel concepts. Additionally, this passage speaks about doing your work with a pure heart and a good attitude. Like the prior point in the section about having a good attitude, it opens up avenues to have conversations about gospel matters. Like what we're talking about in our youth adult Sunday school class, about having gospel conversations. Now this happened to me when I was working at a supermarket. I was a grocery clerk for many years, and one of my other responsibilities, as needed, was to put away carts and to clean up any bodily fluids found throughout the store. Yes, I know, glamorous work as it was. But this was a part of my job that I didn't enjoy, but it was something that I always continued to ask to do. I wanted to show them and make a good impression to demonstrate what it means to serve others. And because of this attitude, and because of the work ethic I had with this, I had a chance to share the gospel in conversations with many of my coworkers, and actually in the customers themselves that were shopping. I wouldn't have had these opportunities and if I did not go out of my way to do so. This type of attitude and service is so countercultural, but it opens up doors. These doors that you didn't even know were there. It gives us opportunities. So to all of you who work, how are you being witnesses of the gospel at your workplace? In the same way, the last verse, verse 9, shows that managers should be treating with those who they have authority over with the same respect that they expect to be treated. In this way, we can start having conversations by being a supervisor who imitates Christ, who runs their team, their unit, their departments, their company in a manner that glorifies Christ. A stark contrast to modern business practices. Managers, supervisors, how are you being a witness of the gospel to your employees? Lastly, this passage also applies to children and adults in school. Being a witness regardless of what type of educational environment you're in. Have it be a college, public school, home school, private school. You are all under the authority of a teacher, professor, or administrator, whoever is in charge of you. In this passage, it speaks just as it does to everyone else in the workplace. 
treating your teachers, your administrators with a due respect and diligently taking your studies seriously so that you may honor God in your careers. And in doing so with a pure heart and a good attitude, you may have conversations caused by your actions. Your classmates, your teachers should know that you are a Christian. How you act, how you speak, how you study should reflect that. If they don't know, then you are missing out on an opportunity to live the gospel. Students, how are you witnessing in your school environment? This morning we have seen again and again that the church are witnesses. That we are witnesses of our sin. We are witnesses of God's love and mercy. And witnesses of God's grace. And because we are witnesses of these acts of God, we must share the gospel in word and in deed in all of our spheres of influence in our families, jobs, in our school environments. For as the great 1960s hymn says this, and they will know we are Christians by our love, by our love, and they will know we are Christians by our love. People will know that there is something different by your actions, and they will know God's love by your words. I asked everyone a lot of questions throughout the sermon today, and I will ask you one last time. How are you living as a witness to the acts of God? Are you living in according to His Word? Are you ready and willing to share the Gospel with whoever God puts in your path? If so, be the witness that God has called you to be. Live the Gospel. Speak the Gospel. Be a witness. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, Holy and Almighty God, we thank You for all that You have done for us. We thank You that You have given us Jesus as the Savior of sin. Thank you, Father, for loving us and by showing us our thin sin. Thank you for, by your mighty acts, having brought salvation, Father, by your Son's life, death, and resurrection. Father, please help us to live lives as witnesses of our sin, of your love, grace, and mercy. Father, give us opportunities to have gospel conversations with those in our spheres of influence. Please give us the ability, the boldness, Father, and the perseverance to live lives in accordance with your word. For it is your glory that should be lifted up and not ours. Help us build relationships that we may love others as you first love us. Father, help us share the gospel in word and deed. Please help us to do this today and tomorrow and for the rest of our lives, being witnesses for you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Before we close um, this morning, we have just one reminder of announcement um, of Luca's baptism, um, which is going to be at his house.